Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. We are on to episode number 64. My name is Dwayne Osterland, and I'm your host. I'm also the founder of Nova's Mindful Life Institute Family Counseling and Recovery Center in Long Beach, California. If you or anyone you know is struggling with any of life's challenges, please reach out to us. You can find more information about us at theaddictedmind.com forward slash help. Once again, if you're enjoying The Addicted Mind and you're finding it helpful, Please go to iTunes and rate and review us. That really does help. I really appreciate it. I think we passed 100 reviews, and uh, that's super exciting. I can't believe that. And don't forget, join our Facebook group. You can go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast and click join. So our guest today is Jacob Jones, author of the book Recovered, and he is going to share his personal story of overcoming and working through opioid addiction. And he's going to go into the the whole history of how it started, how it developed, uh, some of the underlying causes. And I just really enjoyed the conversation with him. It was real and shows you that you just got to keep trying. If you're struggling with addiction, you got to keep trying and until it works. You got to keep, you got to keep reaching out. His story definitely demonstrates that. I'm glad he reached out and uh, wanted to come on to the Addicted Mind podcast. So here you go. Let's listen to his story. All right, everybody. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. Today, my guest is Jacob Jones, and he is going to share his recovery story. Jacob, you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Yeah. Like you said, my name is Jacob Jones. I guess a little bit about me, if, if y'all want to know that. I'm from Birmingham, Alabama. Grew up and was raised there, but currently living in Gainesville, Florida now. And I'm sure we can, uh, during the story, we can track that story a little bit more. Great. Awesome. Yeah. I'm excited to hear you sent me a copy of your new book, Recovered. And uh, I was able to peek through it and, and look at it. And I'm really excited to talk to you about some of these, especially the opioid epidemic going on and people who are struggling with that, just to hear somebody's story who's who's been through it and gone through it 
I'm excited to hear it. So let's, why don't we start at the beginning? When did this start to happen? And yeah, yeah, you tell me this. <laughs> yeah, well, that's why I, with my brief introduction, I kind of cut it short because I knew we'd, we'd get to the bulk of the stuff when we were talking about it. But like I said, I, I grew up in, in Alabama, uh, Birmingham, Alabama. And that's kind of where my book starts is in my younger years, going through this whole recovery process, I've had some time to reflect back and kind of trace back and see where some of these things began. And um, I remember from a very early age, I had big teeth and big ears. I still do, but my head just kind of grew into them naturally. They're not okay. as big as they... I didn't know that. We're, we're watching yeah. video. It doesn't seem like you have... But okay. okay. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's how I grew into them. So, you know, hopefully it doesn't look as right. big anymore. But, but I remember oftentimes being teased for that, you know, when I was younger. And, and I remember that feeling, right. you know, of how that made me feel. And, and I felt, you know, it was probably like first or second grade. And, and I remember feeling feelings of insecurity, fear of not being accepted by my peers. Of course, as a first grader, I couldn't fully formulate that. But looking back on it, that's what it was. Right. Yeah. So I grew up and around seventh grade started getting into football. My dad played football. He played um, at the University of Alabama and played for the Atlanta Falcons. And back, actually, I don't know if you remember, but uh, they had the USFL. It's called the United States Football League. Right. Yeah. Back in the 80s. And uh, so he played a couple of years there as well. So long story short, it was a big, we were a big sports family. So I got into playing football and really enjoyed it. I actually loved playing the game. And then I also quickly found out that due to my performance and how I was performing, I was more accepted by my peers and, and those around me. And and life was a lot easier because I was a football player. Right. So being being able to kind of get those accolades, you got accepted. And especially if you're growing up and kind of felt that insecurity or had been made fun of, that was, a, yeah, what a great avenue to feel better. Exactly. So just, just an easy way, something that I depended on outside of myself, something that was, um, it was performance-based. So depending on how accepted I was, was tied to my performance. Just looking back on that was, it's a very unhealthy thing to lean on or rely on for some type of satisfaction or some type of peace and happiness. But I did, and, and I didn't know it at the time, but it, it was great. It was probably my first addiction was football. And, and it's, it's kind of odd to say that a little bit, but it was because that's where uh, going and practicing and um, I had that endorphin release and, and felt great you know, after the physical aspect of it and then also the social aspect of it. I really felt amazing, you know. I mean, that makes a lot of, I, I don't think it sounds like crazy at all. You know, working in this field, you know, when we're in some kind of psychological pain, we find a route to escape that. And sometimes that becomes our primary way of doing that. And then it doesn't always serve its purpose because it becomes a little too much or a little more than we need. Exactly. So going forward from seventh grade into high school, I kind of experimented with drinking and um, I smoked weed in high school, but you know, drinking was kind of just, I don't want to say normal because I don't know if kids, you know, depends on the type of kid, if it's normal for them or not, but right. Right. Yeah. But I did, you know, on the weekends, I'll say it wasn't anything excessive. It wasn't anything crazy. It was just kind of like, I guess, par for the course for some high schoolers that if, if you do drink. And then I smoked weed a couple of times as well in high school. 
again, nothing, nothing a lot because of the athletics. I was really, really focused on that. And um, so I worked really hard and actually at the end of that, got a scholarship to the University of Alabama amongst some other schools as well. So ended up going to Alabama and this is the crazy thing. I remember going to Alabama and having the thought already. So this is, this is something since seventh grade through high school, I worked extremely hard at it. Um, I was very, very dedicated. That was my whole world. And um, on the way there, I actually remember having the thought of already looking at the NFL. And I wasn't even at college yet. I hadn't even practiced one practice, done one workout. And so I think that was just very indicative of me, of nothing. It didn't matter how long I'd worked for it or how big it was built up in my mind. Once I got it or got close to it, it wasn't enough and I had to have the next thing. Right. So you kept, you had to keep going and uh, kind of filling yourself with these, I guess, this activity to get that praise or to get... Yeah, like a, a bigger and better praise. So... I got that one, got to college, got to the collegiate level. And like I said before, really, I even got there. I was thinking, what's the next level I can go to? And, um, and I think that was very indicative of, of my mindset and, and how mentally unhealthy I was at that time and not even knowing it. So I get there to the University of Alabama and ended up tearing my quad my freshman year. So I took a red shirt. My freshman year, um, ended up doing some rehab in a different way, <laughs> rehab right, for right. the muscles. And um, so ended up trying to come back uh, a few months later, tore my quad again. And it just continued to be this cycle that I would just repeat. Literally, I think I tore my quad six different times within a span of two years. Oh, my gosh. Uh, wow. And they would just go back and forth and back and forth. And so then if you if you have a torn quad, you can't perform. You can't get the praise that you, you're fixed yeah. to, to feel better right. about yourself if you're, yeah. Exactly. So that was the first time I started to see my freshman year, I started to see it, everything kind of erode around me from the football aspect. Um, I kind of started to have thoughts of, well, I don't even know if this is going to work out because I've come back one, two, three times and still, you know, I don't feel like I'm at a hundred percent. I continue to tear my quads and during this time, it's like the perfect storm of events that happened during that freshman year. You know, I was kind of feeling depressed and still had, uh, you know, I dealt with anxiety as well and, and had panic attacks and couldn't sleep and, and all this stuff. And uh, again, the, the physical aspect of football helped out with that. Right. Yeah. But it was still there, you know, still, still a trend in my life. So, so you kind of had this under these underlying issues kind of going on that are setting the stage. Right. For what's coming up. Exactly. Yeah. So what happened my freshman year, I actually got pneumonia. And again, I'd taken a, I'd taken a red shirt my freshman year already. And I got pneumonia and they prescribed me a cough syrup that had hydrocodone in it. Mm -hmm. And I remember the first time, in, and I, I had taken opiates before for different things. I think in high school, you know, I broke my finger and and this and that. But um, that was the first time I actually remember taking an opiate and just absolutely loving it. Right. And right. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, I, I had the anxiety and I had, um, you know, I had trouble sleeping. And then I took this. So it said on the bottle, take, take two teaspoons every four to six hours. 
And so I, I took the two teaspoons and I was like, wow, that makes me feel so much better. You know, my pneumonia feels better. My anxiety feels better. I feel like I could go to sleep if I wanted to. Why not just drink half the bottle? Wow. And that was, it's terrifying to look back and think that that was my thought process. It's like skip from A to B and then go straight to Z and just. But it, it sounds like it hit your brain right in the right way, like to answer all of these underlying things that you had going on. And you take this and boom, you're like, I feel better. Yeah. I, I feel better. I like, yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Like this is, this is what I've been searching for. This is the thing yeah. that God placed on this earth for me, yeah. you know? Yeah. I think so many addicts who, you know, they have, like when your brain is ripe for, for the addictive process, so many right. people say, I tried that and that was it. It was just, it just answered this underlying thing. I didn't know how to answer myself. Right. Exactly. I had no healthy way to answer it. And then that was the quick fix. That was the instant gratification. Yeah, totally. So that was the start or the peak of my interest in opiates. And I remember actually drinking all that cough syrup and going back to the doctor. And he said, and I, and I told him I spilt it down the sink. <laughs> and I remember him, of course, I'm sure they never get that, right? Right, yeah, no. And uh, so I remember going to him and he said, okay, he said, I believe you, you know, because, you know, you're on the football team, I know you and this and that. Right. Of course, like, you know, everybody who's listening knows it's a complete lie. Right. But he said, yeah, usually the people who come in here and tell me that are either A, trying to sell it on the street or B, they're drug addicts. And so I was like, oh, I'm neither one of those. So, you know, I should be good. Right. Of course not. Yeah. No, yeah. no, not at all. Well, I mean, you know, you're in the first, you can still justify it at that point. Right. I mean, it's like, exactly. I, yeah, yeah. Okay. Maybe I had a little too much, but you know, all right. right. I'm not that bad. Exactly. No consequences. No, no even thoughts of that being reality. Just having fun at that point and discovering it and so I go and from there, I run out of prescription and, and it was pretty much done. I, I wasn't really chomping at the bit to find more. Every now and then things would come up and I'd find an opiate here and there and take it. But it wasn't something that I was really aggressively seeking at that point. But I was dabbling, still smoking weed and drinking and you know taking stuff here and there. And then my sophomore year, I ended up taking a medical release from football. So my football career was over. You know, this thing that I would built up in my head that I had my identity wrapped up in, you know, I wasn't Jacob Jones anymore. I was an Alabama football player because right. that was a lot easier to be than myself. Yeah, yeah. And um, so I go and take the medical release and then I started getting into more and more opiates and uh, started doing Oxycontin and Xanax. And before I knew it, you know, when I was about 20 years old, probably six months to a year after that, I was just fully addicted. Right. When, when did, you know, like, like, I like, I like to ask this question, like, when did you start to have a suspicion that maybe this is a problem? Like, maybe, maybe this is too much. Yeah, that's, that's a good question. You know, I, I remember the exact day. Um, where I was taking it and I tried to stop, you know, it was kind of fun, still in the kind of fun phase, but getting a little bit weird phase and a little bit too much. Right. But still, you know, I had that heavy denial of, you know, this isn't going to take me down or this isn't going to um, mess my life up. 
because my dad always told me, don't, don't do drugs. Don't do drugs. Don't do drugs. And so I'm like, well, this isn't crack and this isn't heroin. And this is just Oxycontin. It's a pill that, you know, old ladies take this stuff. What's, what's the harm? Yeah. It's a prescription. Yeah. Come on. Doctors give it to you. So doctors are always, you know, so it has to be good. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, so, but I remember, you know, I was taking more and more of it and I was like, well, this is getting too much. This is kind of getting out of hand. I need to stop. And, and I remember trying to stop and going through severe withdrawals and calling my mom and basically telling her, you know, it just all hit me like a ton of bricks. Like, Oh my God, I'm freaking addicted to Oxycontin. Right. And I remember calling my mom for the first time and, uh, you know, letting her know. And yeah, so that's the answer to your question. That was probably the first time that it truly, truly set in. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's scary. That's that moment. Yeah. Like maybe something's, Something's bad here. Yeah, and it it was. So they ended up bringing me home, and uh, shortly after that, the first time through it is is such a bewildering process for the person that's going through addiction and for the family. And uh, you know, you're just trying everything you can, um, searching online for cures to addiction, and right, yeah, you know, is there a pill you can take to fix the the addiction to pills that you've been taking and you know, all this crazy stuff that, that you read and, and think that it may work, but unfortunately it didn't. So I ended up checking into a rehab for about 30 days there in Alabama. And uh, I remember after 30 days calling my parents and telling them, yep, I'm good. Like, uh, of course, why, why would I ever do this again? That's the dumbest thing. Crazy. Yeah. yeah. Dumbest thing ever. Why would I ever do it again? It's so stupid. And, uh, you know, having that self-knowledge, like finally, I guess, being clean long enough to see the fog lift and, and seeing like, wow, well, why would I ever do that again? Right. And uh, I had funny thought of, you know, I didn't really have a problem drinking, so I can drink fine. That was never an issue for me. And, uh, and my parents were, you know, were a leery of that and but didn't see anything too crazy inherently dangerous about it so from there that's what i started to do is i started drinking some and eventually what the drinking did is just a catalyst to lead me back into the stuff that my brain wanted so it was just like a teaser it's like if you're really really hungry and i give you one french fry you know you're gonna want right the french fry and the ketchup and the hamburger too yeah it kind of it kind of primes the brain and lowers the resiliency to be able to say, you know, I don't want to, I don't really want to do that. Right. Exactly. It definitely does. Yep. So it's just, it's just like building, you know, a small bridge to doing it instead of cutting it out completely and letting that thought kind of linger. And, and then I wasn't, I wasn't doing any like recovery stuff really. I kind of just thought like, oh yeah, just really thought I could live on that fact of, of never doing it again. And, and of course I wouldn't do it again. And yeah, that's all I was relying on. If that's all you're relying on, it's it's not going to work. If if you truly are, do fit into that category of uh, of addiction of you know body and mind and, and spirit, and it's just um, that's that's not enough to combat that. Right, right. And so you you relapse back into it. I relapse back into it, and uh, had more consequences. Ended up going to jail, getting arrested, having to do drug court. You go to rehab and, and your, your story isn't, I think it's important for people who are listening that, you know, relapse is part of the recovery process and that sometimes it takes several attempts to kind of get sober and get clean. But 
I, I was kind of wondering, like, the second time you started to use again, how did you justify that? Or how did you, what was your kind of, I guess your addictive thinking that said, yeah, I'm, I'm going for this? So, you know, like we touched on, it, it happened with, call it not my drug of choice, which is alcohol. And I could really, it wasn't something that, you know, I was super crazy about. But what I thought was with that catalyst was that I could do when, when I went back, this is my thought going into it. I thought, well, this time I just won't use as much, or this time I'll just use on the weekends. This time I'll kind of temper my using. And of course I won't, won't let it get out of control because then I'll go back to rehab again. That's so stupid. So I'll just do, you know, right. two or three lower tabs on the weekend and just stop there. And that's it. So that's the the lie that my brain was selling me at that point. Yeah, definitely. And you hear that kind of justification and to get that back in your body again. Yeah. I mean, it's like anything that your brain can tell you to to put that back in your body, it'll if you'll allow it, it'll it'll spin it that way. So you can go go back and get it again. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So then you so now you hear now you're using again. So what what happens next? So I ended up getting arrested for possession and ended up going to a drug court and was in drug court for a year. Wow. And this was, this was super tough, A, because I still hadn't come to grips really that I was addicted and still hadn't come to grips that I really needed to do some serious work on this. And in the whole time, this is bizarre, but I was just, I never had the thought of, well, maybe I should get help or maybe I should really consider stopping somehow, whatever that looks like. And, but I was just stockpiling drugs that whole year and just literally waiting until I got done so I could use again. I mean, the thought it, it really never crossed my mind that the same thing that got me into rehab, the same thing that got me into this jail wow. and um, having to do all this stuff, you know, I'd have to call, they have a color code. So you have to call every morning. And if your color comes up, you have to go take a drug test and your color would come up, you know, about three or four times a week. And for me, where I was, it was like an hour and a half round trip. And that was just driving. So it's about right two hours out of my day that I would have to go and take these drug tests and having to lie to my job because I don't want to tell them that, you know, I was in drug court and that I got arrested for drugs and having to make up excuses to go take these drug tests and be gone for two hours. And so it was just, it was a terrible ordeal. So anyways, I, I go through that process. And like I was saying, I'm just didn't even cross my mind. This thing that got me into all this stuff was the same thing. I was just building this huge runway and wanting to do when I got out. So I get out, I hit the ground running harder than ever before. I have some money saved up. I have the stockpile of drugs and I'm just off to the races again. And uh, so there's a lot of consequences that happen. This and that, I was living with my brother that almost torched that relationship just because of, you know, the life I was living and just not honest, just trying to always just very, it's very selfish lifestyle. Um, you know, I can only think about myself and the drugs that I want to get and didn't seem like it at the time, but obviously looking back with a clear mind now, that's the way it was. And that's just, yeah. And I, I think that's so common because, you know, when you're so focused on, on the addiction, everything else goes out the window 
you don't see the really you don't see how it impacts everybody. You're just I gotta I gotta go this direction. Right. Yeah. And if anybody is listening or doesn't know too much about addiction, the, the easiest way I can describe it is being hungry. So um, to have a loved one that's going through addiction, the the way to liken that is say we'll go two or three days without eating, and then say well don't don't think about eating because it's bad for you, and just focus on helping me and, and loving me and. And you get to day three and you're just so hungry that that is all you can think about. And it's the same way with addiction that, you know, when you start to go a couple of days and go, go through withdrawals and stuff like that, it's just, it's just an all consuming thought in your mind. And it's, uh, it's scary, you know, very scary. Yeah. Yeah. Very scary. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that's what people that aren't addicted have a hard time seeing is that it, it's like at one point it's all consuming, but it's also terrifying. It's like, you know, you, you're two parts of yourself. I mean, part of you, yeah. I think at a certain level knows I don't want to do this. And then another part is just so overwhelming. I'm going forward and I can't, I can't. Exactly. And yeah, it's hard to explain addiction to people who, who don't experience or haven't experienced that, that compulsive drive. Yeah, it is. It's bizarre. And, and and I got to that point, kind of what you're talking about. You know, so I, I go and after the drug court ended up again, you know, just going harder than ever and burning relationship with my brother. And I was living with him at the time, then moved out, moved back in with my parents. And at this point, there's some other stuff in there and it's it's in the book as well. But but really I got to the point where I was just done. You know, I was the thought of using was just so exhausting going and trying to find stuff every day, talking to a drug dealer and all this stuff was just so exhausting. And I was completely done with all of it. And what a difference from going to having a dream of being a football player to now calling the drug dealer to get your drug. How you cope with that, you know, how you, that's so the contradiction, I guess, the, the, and then all the shame and guilt that goes along with that, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because um, I lived in the state of Alabama and going to play at the college there in the state. And so everybody knows that. And then I don't. And of course, people, you know, you do this for long enough. People start to know that something's going on with you or that, oh, well, he's, you know, into drugs. And, and so that shame and guilt start to eat at you. You go through the addiction process. It's this very insidious cycle where... You start to use, you do things that you, you start to draw lines in the sand. You say, I'll never cross that line. Then you, you cross the line and you feel so much shame and guilt. You, you know, whether it's hurting your parents or hurting a loved one in the sense that you stole money from them or you didn't show up to a funeral or did things that you just really don't feel good about. So to soothe that, that shame and that guilt, you use more. Then because of using more, you do more stupid stuff and then you have more shame and guilt and then you use more. So it's this, it's this downward spiral, you know, shame and guilt using, shame, guilt, using, and then you just go down, 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 down. And that's, that's where I was at, at that point. I was, I was just so unreliable to my family. I couldn't love them like I wanted to. And I, I love my family dearly. Again, I thought I was loving them at the time. But I just couldn't really, I had no capacity to actually be there for them or, or support them or emotionally, physically, financially, uh, I couldn't do any of it. So I get to the point where I'm just sick and tired of the game and 
you know, I had been to this place before, but this time I was really, really done. So I ended up giving everything I had to my mom. I was living with my mom and dad at the time and giving everything to my mom and dad. And I said, here, I'm done. I can't do it anymore. And at this point, I was actually on prescriptions. I was I had one doctor prescribe me opiates, um, benzos like Xanax or Klonopin, whatever, and uh, also Ambien. So I was on these three medications all at one time, taking them within a week, and then the next three weeks of the month, just finding you know more opiates and more Xanax and stuff like that uh, wherever I could. So it was bad, you know. I was taking. I was thinking it's probably, you know, fatal amounts of opiates and benzos and hypnotics, you know, every single day. I would take, I would literally, when I would get my prescription of Ambien, sometimes I would take all 30 pills in one night. Wow. And um, not knowing that people intentionally do that to commit suicide or to end their lives. And so I didn't know. I was just trying to not feel anything. I was just trying. I, at that point in my life, I can't say I was intentionally trying to kill myself but at the same point i think i was at at that point where if i didn't wake up i was kind of okay with that too yeah no yeah that makes sense yeah it's it's a very uh, dark place to be yeah very much so i just had nothing to live for you know again you pointed out the stark contrast of having this great football career and then now my life is trying to get a hold of the drug dealer and trying to get my next fix and um yeah Life was just very, very, yeah, very bleak at that point. And so I, I give I give my parents all my stuff with the opiates and the benzos and all that stuff. I ended up just not being able to sleep for that whole week, basically. And um, started just, for lack of a better term, just like going crazy. Um, started talking super fast and um, not making sense. Right. So they didn't know what was going on. Um, they did know, but they didn't know the the psychological aspect of of what was going on. Right, right. They had known I was taking a lot of drugs and had just come off, but I'd come off of opiates before and it wasn't anything like this. But now mixed in with all these other stuff. Yeah, heavy addiction to the the benzos, like the Xanax and stuff like that as well. And then, you know, the the sleeping medications and my brain just could not handle it. Yeah. So it sounds like you were kind of having a psychotic break. You were. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so I went into the hospital and my resting heart rate was at stroke level. So they actually admitted me to the CCU, which is a critical coronary unit. And I was there for a week. And um, wow. I don't remember really. It was bizarre. You know, I guess <sighs> lack of sleep and. Yeah being in the state I wasn't eating and all this stuff, but I don't remember anything. I was awake pretty much the whole time. I really didn't sleep, but I don't remember anything from that week in the CCU. And the next thing I remember from there is just, I went from there to a psych ward and I was in a psych ward for about three weeks. And I just remember coming to in the psych ward, you know, and having, you know, lucid thinking and, and, you know, actually like, not being in this weird dream state that I was in. And uh, I remember waking up and people had their, their throat slit and their, their wrist slit and had staples and all this stuff. And I just felt like, I mean, all I could think about was like, I just woke up in hell. Like, where, where am I? And so I talked to my parents and they, they tried to get me out of there. And long story short, they, they do. But 
I, I just, I really, really feel for people in those situations that don't have any advocates. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, because I don't think I would have made it through that if I didn't have my parents checking with the doctor saying, oh my God, that's way, quit prescribing him that type of this and that and, and trying to taper off the medications quickly and yeah, so bad. Yeah, I was definitely, as, you, as you've been telling your story, I've been thinking a lot about your your folks and how they really, it sounds like they were, it really supported you in the, in your lowest point. Like they were really there for you. Definitely. They did. And, you know, they got to the point there at the end. That was, this is actually the point that I'm about to get to. And so even after all this stuff, I go and, and go to the psych ward and, and they, they literally told my parents, they said, the doctor said, well, well we're not sure if he's going to make it out of this alive. You know, he may die. Wow. And if he does, you're probably going to have to take care of him the rest of his life because they didn't know if I was going to come out of this psychosis. Right. They didn't know uh, what was going to happen, really. Yeah. And um, so terrified. I, I just can't imagine what it would be like for a parent or a brother or sister to watch your child or your brother sit there and go through something like this. Right. Because, yeah, for me, it was extraordinarily tough and terrible to go through. But it's a whole different ball game when you're watching somebody that you love go through it. Yes. And you just have that helpless feeling, you know? Like there's, there's nothing you can do really. And, um, so they were there at that state and we talk about that all the time. And that adds its own weight to this whole recovery. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's one thing I think that doesn't get talked about enough is the loved ones Yeah, that get drugged through this, you know, hell of addiction Yeah, with us. Yeah. Yeah. So true. So end up going out and, and long story short, uh, about, Four months after that, I ended up taking a job as a manager of a restaurant. And everybody knows that's very stress-free and doesn't have drugs in that environment and very safe thing to do right after you come out of a you know psych ward for drugs. So long story short from there, I get back into it. The stress is overwhelming. The environment is just not great. And I'm not pinning it on that. I'm just saying that that wasn't the smartest choice on my part. Right. And again, I wasn't really doing a lot of work to ensure my recovery or sobriety. And so I go through that and ended up falling again and, and situations got bad again. And I got to the point where my family, they were just about done with me. You know, I, this is probably eight or 10 years of, is Jacob going to make it out of this? Is he going to be okay? Is he really going to be sober this time? Is he not? And just continued like heartbreak, continued consequences of my actions and a lot of things just not going right. So I get to the point where I remember my aunt told me that, and I don't know why, just living in my own delusional world, I always thought that my family was going to be there for me. And my aunt told me, she said, if you keep this up, your family is, your family's about done with you right now. Like if you don't make a change, they are about to just quit supporting you. They can't be around you anymore. Like you're, you're killing them. And um, so that, I remember that feeling of like, that just rocked me to the core to hear that. And this is again, you know, consequences were piling up and that and it was the perfect storm of me throwing up the white flag and, and really and truly accepting help. And that's when I actually moved out of the state and uh, went to a recovery center in Florida and yeah, from there on out, I've been sober now for about three years. 
but there was that moment where that was something in that statement shook you into the core. And uh, a lot of addicts talk about kind of that, that moment where they throw up, they surrender. Right. It's like a surrendering of like, I am helpless here. Right. I am powerless. I am. And that's, it's so important to have that because when you, when, when I was there and I truly admitted defeat, not just like, oh, I need to go get patched up for 30 days or, or, you know, it, it was, it was enough experience to know that it couldn't be something that was just uh, a quick fix because I had done that before. Right. And it was also enough pain to encourage me to really, really do something about it. Right. And so I think the blend of those two, the the experience knowing that this isn't just going to be a quick thing. This is going to be something that's going to be a huge undertaking. And then it's like the, I always had this fear of reaching out, the fear of actually going to rehab, fear of asking for help, fear of, I didn't even know what a life of sobriety was. I had no, I I couldn't fathom living without my drugs anymore. But the pain and and the fear of losing my family for once, it just constantly eclipsed that. Right. So that that pain was greater than, than the fear of reaching out. So that's when I really, kind of threw up the white flag and, and really wanted to go for help. And that's when I went to a recovery center, like I was saying, in, in Florida. And uh, that's kind of where I got my start to this new life and, and learned a whole, a whole lot in that. You know, I remember when I was there, one of the process groups, they're asking, well, how do you feel? And how do you feel about this? And how do you feel about that? And it's like, well, I'm good or I'm okay or it, or it sucks. And they're like, well, well, no, how do you feel? And I, I remember like I had a lot of trouble identifying an actual feeling that I was feeling. Right. Because I covered everything up so much by all the, the drugs and alcohol that I was using that identifying feelings was just, it was so foreign to me. Right, right my whole life for the past eight years was trying to suppress feelings and trying to suppress how the pain or guilt or shame um, that I was going through. And uh, I remember actually doing stuff like that and, and doing a 12 step based recovery program. And, and I remember doing the first step, which kind of drives home the, the whole powerless aspect and right. simultaneous or, or hand in hand with uh, throwing up the white flag type thing. Yeah. And uh, I remember writing, you know, they, they required us to write out a bunch of different scenarios that were basically showed our, our powerlessness. For instance, like just an example, this isn't even my current thing or my example, but just an example would be if you had a, I had a grandfather that was dying and he had a pain pills on his dresser. And instead of going there and really being there for him or to console him, I stole his pain medication. And um, so, you know, I heard examples like that there and Shared my own, of course, and and I remember going through that process and sharing, and I was just like freaking out before because again had a lot of anxiety and I didn't have my drugs or anything to kind of soothe that. Yeah, yeah. So I kind of just had to like face my fears and go through it and and present this to the whole men's community. Right. We have to heal through the eyes of others. We need other people there to support us through this journey. We you can't do it alone. Exactly. So I, I go through that process and, and that's what it is. So when you get plugged into community, just like you were saying, 
you start to see the uh, bravery, the courageousness of other men going through this stuff and opening up and crying and this and that. And and I've never really seen that in my life. You know, I've never right. really, really like sat and talked sober, sat and talked to the man about my feelings. It was just so odd to me and so foreign, you know, to me. It was something that I had to intentionally work on because it was, I had no no training for that in my life. Yeah. And, uh, and it's scary when you feel all that shame and worthlessness. I mean, who wants to, you, you don't want to share yourself if you're feeling all this shame and like worthlessness. I mean, it's so hard, but I guess we learned that doing that creates this uh, bond, the connection that we, we were always seeking for in the first place. Right. And that's what happens, you know, doing that, that first step exercise and sharing some of these things, that, that shame and the guilt and feeling so terrible about because when we're isolated, the opposite of what we're talking about, when we're not plugged in community and we don't have a support system and, and people to help us, you know, walk through this recovery process, when we're alone, I feel like it just just increases the power of that shame and guilt because I think I'm the only person in the whole entire world that is this screwed up. I think I'm the only person in the whole entire world that has done things like this, that has, that has hurt their family. And so that's like an all-consuming thought. Yeah, yeah. And then you go and you hear other people sharing these stories and then you share your own story. And instead of people sitting there and looking at you and being disgusted and saying, well, what, what a worthless piece of crap you are. And they said, yeah, you know, I've done the same thing or, or yeah, I get that. Or yeah, I've been there, I've done that before. And so that whole process to know that you're not alone and going through it is so powerful, very powerful process. Yeah. And it's like, you know, when you, you, you look, you hear the stories from the other person who maybe have done things that they aren't proud of, but you can see the goodness in them, even though they've done those things. Right. In some ways, I think it, you can begin to see the goodness in yourself. Right. And that's, that's where it starts because I really think that a lot of people going through addiction, they have, they have such great qualities about them that, that there's a reason why there's something holding them back. I feel like there's, as something so great that they can offer to this world, but that addiction is just it's holding them back. And so uh, I start on that process and I end up going through that and and working through you know the twelve steps and um, start sponsoring people myself and and end up trying to or continuing to to help people. And then I get plugged into my church and do this and that and start going on mission trips. And yeah, I saw that in your book. I saw it. Yeah, it was actually a really so an amazing thing. Just the again, we have these contrasts, you know, these highs mm-hmm. and lows of recovery. Like you know the the Alabama football player to some dude trying to call his dealer to to get pills to going into rehab and just feeling all this shame and guilt to going to Honduras and that same thing that I felt so shameful about. Yeah, now is used as a tool to inspire hope and faith in other people. So I get to go on these crazy trips. Like I was in Honduras and sharing my testimony to prisoners there in Honduras and even within Florida going and sharing different rehabs and this and that. And and so definitely to anybody listening or if you're going through that stuff, the, the thing that almost kills you, the thing that you think is so shameful or so bad through the right process, that can be the thing that is so potent in your testimony to really help and inspire 
others because it it shows others that there is there's a chance to recover you know and shows others that um, this thing is is real that you can actually come out of that hell and come out of that valley and not only for yourself but the benefit of others right it's like you have to you have to walk through that that darkness and um, to be able to I guess be able to give it back, make make meaning out of it, and to bring it to other people. Yeah, yeah, and it's uh, that's that's one of the most. And I say now that all that stuff that I've gone through the uh, the CCU drug court, the psych ward, it's is the biggest blessing in my life because without it, there would be no book. Without it, you know, I wouldn't be able to share my testimonies and or my testimony to to different people, you know, here and and around the world and. Just a fascinating thing, how that works. And how your story can can help a lot of people out there. And um, I think that's just, that's an amazing thing and a wonderful thing because so many people out there who are struggling or listening to this podcast are, are struggling with addiction and, and lost or they have loved ones who are lost and and uh, your, your story can inspire some hope. So I ask this question a lot at the end of the podcast. Someone's listening to this right now and they're struggling, what, what would be the one thing you'd want them to know? That's a tough question. The one thing that I want them to know is that you're valuable and, and that you're worthy and that what you're going through right now um, may seem like it's unfair and it may seem like, like it's going to kill you and it may seem hopeless and it may seem like torture, but you can make a choice today to pivot and come out of it if you choose to get help in this day that seems like the worst day in your life you can always remember that it will be the best day in your life because it's the day that you turned and started to come out of addiction and started on your recovery walk oh thank you so much for 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 coming on jacob i really appreciate your yeah, story thanks. and your wisdom that you're sharing and so how, how if people are interested and they want to know more about you how can they get a hold of you or find more information about you? Or Yeah, well, the book is on Amazon. If you just type in Recovered, it should come up. Or if you type in Recovered by Jacob Jones, you can find it on there. And I have a website called thesustainedlife.com. And then also on Instagram at Sustained Life. Great. And I'll link all that in the show notes as well. So you can go to theaddictedmind.com and find all that information as well. Jacob, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story and your wisdom. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. The show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com forward slash 64. If you're enjoying The Addicted Mind, please support us. Go to iTunes, rate and review us. That really does help get us exposure and it helps people find the podcast. And I really appreciate it as well to know that people are listening and enjoying what uh, is being created here. Also, join our Facebook group and go to Facebook and just type in The Addicted Mind Podcast. And we're working to grow that group and make it even more valuable. So we'd love your participation. So please go and do that as well. And once again, I hope you have a wonderful day and uh, we'll see you next week.
It's easy to blame ourselves for our struggles with alcohol. We see people around us being able to control their drinking without any consequences, yet no matter what we try, we can't seem to figure it out for ourselves. My name is Jillian Teets, and I am the host of the Sober Powered Podcast, where I use my biochemistry background to explain the latest research in addiction and help you understand both why you drink the way you do and how to develop the skills and mindset you need to find freedom from alcohol. I discuss topics like why we think about our drinking 24-7, why we have no off switch, and why we crave alcohol. If you're struggling with your drinking or you know someone who is, then I hope that you will check out the Sober Powered Podcast. New episodes every Friday. See you there.